All right, guys, my name is Jordan, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. And uh, this is our last sermon in the book of Matthew, which it feels like this has been a long journey through this book, and it's been really important for our church. And this book has carried us through a lot of things. I mean, think back to the Sermon on the Mount. We kind of slowed down and focused there. And then all the things that we've learned about the kingdom of God through Matthew. And so I actually wanted to do something different to start us out. Instead of an introduction to this message, I just want to give you about a minute, a minute and a half to reflect back on what God has been teaching you through Matthew. Okay, so I know that's a little bit different, but just embrace it, all right? So would you flip open your Bibles to Matthew, and then just with your Bible open in front of you, would you just pray this to God? God, what do you want me to remember and learn from this book? And just take a second and just spend time thinking about what God has been doing in you through the book of Matthew. Feel free to flip through the book a little bit, maybe reread some scriptures, uh, but just spend a little bit of time with Jesus. So I'm going to give you about a minute, minute and a half to do that. Go ahead. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you, as we're about to talk about, you are alive, which means we are not just doing some religious practices, but we are here to meet with you, and we believe that you're present with us by your spirit. And so we, we look back on what we've been through in Matthew, and, and God, we do not want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to be transformed through what you've been telling us about yourself, and you've given us this, this privilege of, of telling us the greatest story that has ever been told. And, and we want to respond to you rightly, Jesus, but we need your help doing that. And so we can't just sort of muster, muster up enough willpower to, to be like you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to, to make us like Jesus, to use this story that you've been telling us through this gospel about his life to transform everything about the way that we live. And so we're asking you to do that. Take these words that we've been walking through and apply them to our lives, God. 
We love you. We're thankful to be here with you. Amen. All right, so we're finishing this out, and we've got two of the, the, the major teachings of Christianity in our text today in Matthew 28. So we've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the focal point of what Christians believe. It's our only hope. It's all that we have. And then we've got the Great Commission, which is the description of what it means to live the Christian life. And so the plan here is to kind of have too many sermons almost and unpack those big truths about Christianity. So we'll start with the resurrection, what Christians believe. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Okay, I want to stop really quick there. Not only are they going to the tomb early this morning, but these women were there as Jesus was put in the tomb. And I just want to point out that all of the disciples who had made big promises towards Jesus had abandoned him, but these women stood by his side. The Bible goes out of its way, and Jesus went out of his way to acknowledge the dignity of women in particular, and talks about the courage of specific women. And these women were at the centerpiece of history and were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, which is incredibly different from culture in that moment. And Jesus is countercultural in the way that he values women. Verse two, and behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men, battle-tested soldiers falling on their faces in fear. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen As he said, come see the place where he laid. Can you put yourself there for a minute? I think that's why part of the reason why God gave us imaginations is so we can feel what's true. Put yourself there with these women. There's this massive earthquake. The battle-tested soldiers are laying the ground on the ground, cowering in fear. This angel who looks like lightning comes down and he speaks to not to the soldiers but to these women and he says, do not be afraid. Come look at the tomb and you go with them. Imagine being there in the moment. You walk up to this empty tomb and you see that Jesus isn't there and with the women, you start running back into the city to tell this news and there's a part of you that's still afraid that this couldn't be true but there's a part of the joy that is starting to wake up in your soul and as you're running, you're stopped in your tracks and you see him. Jesus Christ in the flesh, alive. And you don't make a decision to fall on your face. You're just in the dirt before you even know what happens. And there's this detail in the story where the women grab a hold of his foot because he has one. It's a physical body. Jesus is glorified, but he's real. He's physical. He's tangible. And you, beside the women, bow at his feet and begin to worship. And all of the depression and all of the despair and all of the sadness has immediately in a moment at the look of Jesus been turned to joy. And Jesus picks you up off of the ground and he dusts you off and he looks you in the eyes and he says, do not be afraid. The same thing that he'll be saying to you for the rest of your life and into eternity. Do not be afraid. I'm here. And 
then he says, go tell my friends that I'm alive. And you run into the city to tell the greatest news that has ever been told. That's the story. So there's two questions I want to ask of it. Did it really happen? And if it did, what does it mean for us? The first one, did it really happen? Resurrections, obviously not super common. Okay, so we got to address that question. And even if you are convinced that it happened and you've been convinced of that your whole life, I I think you need to engage this question for yourself and your own belief also so that you can interact with people that are a little bit more skeptical. Did it happen? Well, here's the first thing I want to say about that is if it didn't, I am out on Christianity. Like if you could prove to me that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen. I'm walking off the stage. I'm not only done with ministry, I'm immediately done with Christianity because none of this matters if Jesus did not rise from the dead. To be clear, Christians are not just putting on some good morality. We believe that the God of the universe is alive and that we can have an encounter with him. And if we don't have that, then we have nothing. So let's just call that what it is. But conversely, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is God, and everything he said is true. And he is the Lord of your life, and you should bow the knee to him. The resurrection is the focal point of all of history. And even if you're struggling with other doubts or you have other questions about the Bible or other questions about Christianity, they do not matter because if Jesus is alive, he answers every question that you have because he affirmed the rest of it. Either none of this is true if Jesus is still in the grave or he's out of the grave and all of it is true and he should be praised with all of your life. So we don't have time to in detail kind of dig into all of the reasons why we believe the resurrection is true. But I do just want to briefly give you a couple reasons that that we believe that. One is, all scholars, essentially all scholars, Christian, Jewish, secular, will agree that there was a real person named Jesus Christ who really lived, who really died on a Roman cross, and that there was an empty tomb three days later. We know there had to be an empty tomb because there was this religion that claimed that Jesus has risen from the dead that originated in the town that he was buried in. Do you understand how incredibly easy that would have been to disprove? Jesus raised from the dead. No, he didn't. Here's his body. Christianity done. Okay, so we know that there was an empty tomb, and, and pretty much all scholars will agree with that regardless of the background. Now, does that prove that there was a resurrection? No, but it does limit our logical explanations for what happened on that day down to essentially two. Either Jesus rose from the dead or the disciples stole the body, which are the two options that are given in Matthew 28. Now, here's another thing that we know is that 500 people were eyewitnesses of Jesus after he came back to life. We know that from 1 Corinthians 15. 500 people is a lot of people. Take this room, double it. Try to get that many people to agree on anything, like anything. It's going to be hard. But you could go through, if you had those 500 people in this room who were still alive when Paul wrote that, and you could go one by one and go, was Jesus alive? Did you see him? Yes. Was Jesus alive? Did you see him? Yes. And every single person would attest to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So either 
500 people saw a collective hallucination of Jesus alive and the disciples who were terrified of the Romans somehow snuck past a Roman guard that was guarding the tomb and that Roman guard, they would have been put to death if they failed at their job, that somehow the disciples snuck past them and then walked through tomb walls to steal the body. Either that happened or Jesus really was who he says he was and did what he said he would do, rise from the dead. Those are the two options. And so if you are a a skeptic of Christianity, I know not everybody here, not everybody watching online is a Christian. I want to thank you for being here. Do I think that that will immediately change your mind on everything? No, not necessarily. Maybe it will. God could do that. But here's what I want to ask of you. Will you just acknowledge some of your bias against the supernatural? You have a tendency to believe that the resurrection couldn't have happened because you start with the assumption that the supernatural can't be true, but you can't start from that place when that is the question at hand. And so if you put down a little bit of that bias, and not only skeptics, but Christians who are struggling to believe this, who are doubting, would you doubt your doubts a little bit? (laughs) When you doubt, you intuitively assume that that must be true, even though the evidence points you in a different direction, namely that Jesus is alive. That's the reason why you came to him in the first place, is because you were convinced of that, you've experienced that, remember what you've experienced in him. It happened. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the best historical explanation, but not only historical, we know that because he's changed our lives. And so what does it mean if he's alive? Well, it means that what we talked about last week, not only did Jesus die so that you would never have to die, but he rose from the dead so that you could rise from the dead too. Jesus' resurrection means your resurrection. It's not just Jesus' grave that wasn't safe from God. It's every grave of any person who believes in him. Graves are not safe from Jesus. The first thing that the resurrection does is it eternally secures your salvation. Your salvation is secure. And then second, because of the resurrection, we know that this is not the end. This is not the end of the story. So first, your salvation is secure. Because Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death, all of your enemies that were trying to separate you from God, nothing is powerful enough to keep you from God if you want him. Okay, I want to read to you a quote from Dane Ortland. And in in this quote, he also uh, quotes a Puritan, Richard Sibbs. But Dane says this, God's love is invincible because of Christ's coming. Whatsoever Christ is freed from, I am freed from it. It can no more hurt me than it can hurt him now in heaven. For God to de-resurrect you, to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You are that safe. Do you understand the logic? If the reason why you can defeat sin, Satan, and death is because of the power of Jesus Christ, if your identity is in him, and if he publicly declared his victory over all of those things, then your salvation is unbelievably secure 
Because in order to take you down, your enemy would have to take Jesus down, and he's more powerful than every enemy in the world. There's nothing on this planet that could take you away from him because Jesus has proved himself stronger than all of his enemies. Your salvation is secure. But secondly, the resurrection means that this is not the end. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to go read it for yourself this week. It's beautiful. But I want to read you just a small chunk of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What a gutsy move to sing like a victory song over death. Now, you know where this verse is read a lot? At funerals. Can you see the apparent tension there? Like I've had these moments at the funerals of my friends and family members where I've either thought about or heard this verse read. And there's a little bit of this instinct that I have that we can have, which is, death, where's your sting? What do you mean? It's in the casket. The sting of death is on the tears of family members. What do you mean? Where's the sting of death? Aren't we living in the sting of death? Death, biblically, is not just the physical death, but everything that's gone wrong with this world. All the meaninglessness that, that we just can't come to an understanding of what's wrong with this place and why it's not the way we all intuitively know it should be. What do you mean? Aren't we living in the sting of death? But I want you to see what and when this is talking about. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. When Jesus comes back and he turns the perishable into the imperishable. See, when we feel like the sting of death is alive, it's because we're lacking perspective. Here's what Christians know. That this is not the end of the story. That Jesus has given us everything that he has, including his eternal nature and his invincibility. Is that anyone who has trusted Christ is invincible, which means that death is now just a doorway to life. It's just the passageway to everything that we've been dreaming about and wanting. It's the passageway to the real thing, to real life. Because just like Jesus rose from the dead, that was the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15 says, and we will follow him and we will rise from the dead too. That we have that hope that hasn't been fully realized yet and so the sting of death is still hanging around but one day Jesus will fight off the sting of death and he will bring us to new life in him. I love that story in Mark 5 where Jesus goes to the tomb of this little girl who had just died. And there's weeping and there's mourning and Jesus walks in and he essentially tells the, the grievers to go away. And that's the moment that we're living in where we're just, there's weeping and mourning and grieving all around us. But Jesus walks up to that little girl 
And he whispers in her ear, little girl, get up. And she does. She comes to life because Jesus holds the keys to death and he has overcome it. And here is what this text means is that every person who has ever trusted in Jesus, there will be a day where Jesus will walk up to their grave and he will whisper in their ear, wake up. And like they've just been taking a nap, they will come to life in a new resurrected body just like he had and they will be glorious just like he is glorious. And they will never die and they will never get sick and they will never be hurt and they will never hurt again. And not only is that true for all other people, but it's true for you if you've trusted in Jesus, is Jesus will rise you from the dead. And not only is that true, but all of creation will rise from the dead in him. I love Revelation where it talks about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven. But notice the direction, if you can remember that text, it says, I saw the new heavens, the new Jerusalem coming down, coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for God. Why is it coming down? Because heaven is meeting earth and because Jesus is going to resurrect this planet and make it new in him. And we in our new resurrected physical bodies will explore his new resurrected world with him forever. We will run on greener pastures, we will dance on higher hills, and we will live with Jesus forever. We have hope. For so many of us, this stretch has been so discouraging and so awful, and even if this wasn't, you've had those stretches before where you've wanted to give up. But the message of Christianity is that this is not the end, that we have hope, that there's real joy J.R. Tolkien talked about this. He had this idea of what he called a catastrophe. He took catastrophe and just put the word good in front of it. And this is how he defined it. The sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings you to tears. This is that ultimate moment. And what if every cheesy story with a happy ending and cheesy movie where everything comes out right in the end, what if that was cheesy, not because it's unrealistic, but because it's not realistic enough? What if reality was the ultimate turning point of joy and we just aren't quite there yet? We're living in the conflict, but what if the joy is coming? And what if all of those quote-unquote cheesy stories were pointing to the central truth of the universe in Jesus Christ? What if it was real? If it was real, what would we do? Well, we'd give our lives to enjoying it and telling other people about it. So that's the resurrection. Let's talk about the Great Commission. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in, on, on, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So I want you to, to picture this scene. So Matthew tells us that this particular conversation happened when Jesus and his disciples were on a mountaintop that they had agreed to meet at. And the disciples are still trying to process this information. 
Some of them are weeping in joy. Some of them are confused and trying to figure out if this could possibly be true. They're looking at this glorified body of Jesus and they can hardly believe their minds. It's been the worst three days of their life, but now it's the best day of their life and they're worshiping Jesus and Jesus looks out at the crowd and he says this, all authority in on, on heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is an amazing statement. It's like the the Revelation 6 Jesus who's unrolling the scrolls of history and he's the only one who's worthy to hold all of history in his hands. And he's been declared as the Lord over everything. And he's saying to the people in the crowd, I'm Lord over your entire life, over this entire world. And he's saying to us, I'm Lord over you. Jesus is the defining point of your life. He is Lord of your life. Now that's an amazing statement that he's claimed all of that authority, but at least in my opinion, I don't think it's the most amazing thing that he says in this paragraph. I think what's even more amazing is what he says next. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I am glorious, I'm amazing, I'm the authority, so you guys go and tell people about me. And think about the crowd that he's looking at. Like Peter's in the crowd, still like licking his wounds from his betrayal of Jesus, still ashamed, like embarrassed about how he's behaved over the last several days. Matthew tells us that some of the disciples were still doubting. They're looking at Jesus like, is this really him or is this some, some other person who's trying to trick us? Could this possibly be true? It's, it's just this ragtag group of people and you can just picture them like Jesus looks at him and is like, I want you guys to go and to change the world in my name. And you can just see him kind of, Me? And Jesus is like, yeah, you. And we can do that same thing. I mean, you guys are great, but like on the whole, we're fairly ordinary people. Salt City, all right? Like it's fine. And Jesus looks at you and is like, I want you to go out and change the world. And we contend to look around and go, us? Like, why don't you do it, Jesus? Like, that's how some of us think about Christianity, right? Is Jesus is going to change the world, and, and I'm thankful that he saved me, and so I'm going to wait and watch him change the world. And even the disciples have to be thinking. I mean, they're seeing the glorified Jesus. Jesus just, like, like leveled up, right? Like, nerd reference, uh, Pokemon, like, he just went Charmeleon to Charizard, right? Like, he, like, okay, different nerd reference. He was Gandalf the Gray, and now he's Gandalf the White. He just, he, like leveled up, and it's like, Jesus, I feel like you could figure this out. Write your name in the sky, fly around and say, I'm Lord. I don't, like, I ride down from heaven on a white horse, like, heard something about that before. Like, but what does he do? He tells them to go. And we can tend to do that same thing of, like, Jesus, why don't you just do it? But I think it's because we missed the logic of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Here's what Jesus just proved to us, is that he's not a power over kingdom, he's a power under kingdom. That the means by which he wants to transform the world is through completely unexpected things. The way he declared himself the authority over all things is by dying on a cross. Insignificance is what led to glory. And so in the Great Commission, he chooses very ordinary, normal means, namely us, 
to do something extraordinary in the world, change the world in his name. And so here's what the Great Commission does, is it takes very ordinary people with ordinary lives and it, and it enchants everything about your life. So, so it's, he does say go, and some of you do need to go. Like Jesus loves all nations. He loves all people. He wants this whole world, every ethnicity worshiping him. That's central to his heart. And so for some of you, that means that you need to go somewhere to tell somebody about Jesus. But the primary command is make disciples. So it's, it's almost like as you are going, as you are living your normal life, make disciples. So as you have this very ordinary life, Jesus is enchanting it and making it this adventure that you're on with him, where you get to participate in the storyline of history. But first, in order to make disciples, you first have to be a disciple. All right, so here's what Jesus just said a disciple is, is someone who observes all that Jesus has commanded them. Did you catch that in the text? He says, go tell them to observe everything that I've commanded them. So we've developed this idea in modern Christianity that you can be converted to Christianity without your life changing. That somehow conversion and discipleship are two different things. But that contradicts what he's saying here in the Great Commission. That there's only one thing. You meet Jesus and you become a disciple of him where you learn to do all things that he's commanded you. So, so just to clarify, if you have had a conversion experience at some point in your life, you've said like a sinner's prayer, you had a moment with God, and maybe since then you've been attending church, maybe even going to a small group, but nothing in your life has changed. The way you spend your money, the way that you spend your time, the things that you love, if all of that is the same, you, you just are likely not a Christian. That, that conversion experience was not a conversion because you haven't become a disciple of Jesus. People who meet Jesus, their lives revolve around following him. The word disciple means apprentice. So what, what, what do apprentices do? They, for the most part, stop everything else and they learn from a teacher how to perfect a craft. So, Okay, we've got, I, I don't know if Tyrus is here today, but Tyrus is a guy in our church who's an electrician. So I know Tyrus, and I think he's a pretty good electrician. Here's what that doesn't make me, an electrician. Because I know Tyrus and go, I like his electric, electrician work, anyway, um, I like his work doesn't mean that I can go start rewiring a house. The place is going to burn down. Here's what I need to, to do in order to become an electrician, is I need to study Tyrus's work and learn from him how to become an electrician. Just because you know that Jesus exists and you sort of like his work doesn't make you a little Christ. You need to learn from him. You need to study his lifestyle and become a version of Jesus in the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, disciples are called to make disciples. So this is a second misconception of modern Christianity. That there's a select few people who make disciples. So it's church staff 
who make disciples or connection group leaders who make disciples or people gifted in evangelism who make disciples. But when Jesus is speaking this, he's talking to all disciples. All Christians make disciples. So question for you, if you claim Christ, are you making disciples? Not what you think about the Great Commission or if you kind of like the idea of making disciples, are you, what are you doing to influence other people to follow Jesus? Because that's what it means for you yourself to follow him. Now, I want to encourage you, no one person can single-handedly fulfill the Great Commission. And sometimes we feel like we have to. I think this is really important. No one person can meet all of the needs of society. No one person can reflect the multifaceted heart of Jesus. That's something that Jesus said to all of us. It's, it's, it's a y'all thing. Like the Southerners got it right on how to do the plural thing within English. Okay, like when Jesus here is saying that they should go and teach people to obey all things that he's commanded, it's, it's, it's a y'all. It's not just a you. And so it's something that we do together. But because we do it together doesn't mean that you don't have a part to play in it. It's both, right? So, so think about like a football team. A football team is a collection of individuals who have to function together as a team in order to win, right? So no one player could take on an entire football team no matter how good they are. You need a team. It's a team sport. But imagine that you really took this team value and you tried to apply it. You said, it's not about me, it's about the team, right? And so the way you tried to apply it is you're playing linebacker or something like that, you're on defense, and the play starts, and you just stand there like this the whole time, and you're just watching your team play. And the coach freaks out on you, hey, what are you doing? You got to play. And it's like, no, I'm a, I'm a team player. I'm watching my team play. No. <laughs> like, for you to be a team player, you got to play football. That's like, you're playing in the game. Okay. Guys. Some of you need to play football. This is an analogy, all right? So don't take that literally. By play football, I mean make disciples. Like if you are a Christian, you're playing. You're not watching our church play. You are the church. So in order to be a team player, you need to start playing football. Now some of you are playing, but you don't like the position you're playing. So you're like 5, 6, 170 pounds, you're trying to play a lineman. Okay, it's, you need to understand, and, and we can do this thing where we compare what other people are doing and think their gifts are more important than ours. No, just understand who God has made you to be and be that thing and let somebody else be the thing that God has made them to be and we together can start to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, I want to step back. I hope you feel encouraged that Jesus is inviting you on this mission that he has in the world but I also feel, hope that you feel a little overwhelmed because we can't do it. Like obey all the things that he's commanded us. I can't do that. Have any of you watched um, the, the movies or documentaries uh, Free Solo or Dawn Wall? Uh, it's about mountain climbing and they're doing these crazy things where they're hanging their whole body off of a mountain by like a thumb I can't even climb a fence, all right? I've got stitches, I've got stitches on my foot to prove it, all right? So, so imagine that one of those, those climbers came up to me and was like, Jordan, I want you to come, come climb the Dawn Wall with me. 
I'd be partially excited because I got invited into this adventure and they believe in me, but I'd kind of be like, um, I, I can't. Like, I just, I just can't. I can't. We should feel that when we receive the Great Commission. is Jesus is inviting us into this adventure, but we can't do it. Here's what we need to remember, the last sentence of the Great Commission. And I am with you always to the end of the age. We get to experience that truth at an even deeper level than the original hearers of this did. Because Jesus was with them in a sense, but Pentecost hadn't come. But here's what's true of us, is that we have the Holy Spirit in us. God himself with us, teaching us how to live. And so it's like Jesus is not just wanting to climb with you. He puts a rope on you and it's attached to him. And so even if you fall, you can't really fall. And the whole way up, he's coaching you how to climb. He's with you. And so I've learned with the Great Commission to, to try to do less doing and to just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do today? Would you provide me with opportunities to influence people for Jesus? To sit down with my Bible, Holy Spirit, who do you want me to pray for? Can you give me a name? And then from there, can you give me a text to just pray over their life? And then I'll, I'll try and text them or call them and just say, hey, I'm praying for you. Anything I could do. I try to let him drive that in my life because I know that I can't do it. But the problem is that so many of us are trying to live without this last line of the commission. We're trying to just go out and get stuff done for God without recognizing that he was inviting us to be with him. And I, I feel like I haven't understood that for most of my life. So I've kind of used this narrative over my life for a long time of like, I'm, I'm not the most gifted person in the world. I'm not the most intelligent person in the room. I'm not the most skilled person in the room, but I'm just going to outwork you. I'm just going to care more. I'm going to work harder. That's the philosophy I used in athletics and academics, and then it's what I started using in Christianity and in ministry. It's like, I'm not the most gifted person in the world. I'm just going to work harder and care about this more. And I think I thought that that was like virtue, but Jesus is showing me that it's vice, that it's, it's just sin. Because that's not about God. That's about my own fear of insignificance. I just don't want to live a life that doesn't matter. And so I'm working really hard to try to produce something for God, to go out and live a life for God. But the whole time, Jesus was just saying, I just want you to be with me. We as Christians don't primarily live lives for God. We live lives with God. I'm learning that Jesus isn't sending me out to try and get some results and come back to him but he's inviting me to be with him as he walks through this world and changes it for himself. So just be with Jesus and trust him that he'll use your life. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you that you loved us enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And thank you that you loved us enough to give us something to live for. And Jesus, thank you that you're not just sending us out to 
do that on our own. We're expecting us to just produce some nice results for you, but you, you're just inviting us to be with you. And so teach us, God, how to, how to not try to live life for you, but to just live life with you, to believe that you're with us as we go. Um, let this church say yes to the Great Commission. Let us hear your invitation to come live life with you and, and just say yes and to find a way to do it. We love you, God. Amen.